Well, if you're a guest here, you may have figured this out, that we are one church, Northridge Church, but we're in four different locations. We are in not just Plymouth, but Gross Eel, Celine, and as you just heard, the grand opening is happening right now in Northridge Brighton in our new building, and, and we are live stream for the first time. So we're sharing one talk in two places live, which is a, a lot of fun. It's going to be interesting, and there's a little bit more pressure. I get to blow it in two places, not just in one. And so it's a phenomenal deal. But if you are a guest, welcome to Northridge Church. We are a church absolutely committed to helping people to wake up to Jesus, to know him, to communicating his truth. But what's different about us is we're, we're absolutely committed to making sure that we communicate it in the language of our culture in relevant ways that make Jesus, as he ought to be, as the God of the universe, relevant in our everyday lives. And that's what our whole ministry is committed to. And so we're thrilled, if you're a guest here, that you're connecting with us. And we're at the beginning of a, of a brand new series right now called The Book of Mark. And I have to tell you, the, the seed of this series happened a couple of years back. And I'll tell you how. I, I happen to be a person that loves to read historical biography to which many of you should go, boring, right? Eh, historical biography, really. And one of the reasons so few people really enjoy historical biography is because those who write those books have no clue how to bring them in for an ending. And so they, they tend to be like hundreds of pages long. In fact, uh, one biography on Lincoln was written by Doris Goodwin Kearns. It's called Team of Rivals. Anyone read that? Anyone read that? Anybody at Brighton? Okay. Well, one person here at Plymouth. Thank you very much for being readers. Glad, so glad you're readers. But it's, it's like this thick. It is a huge book. And then there's a guy named David McCullough who writes a lot of historical biography. He wrote about Jan John Adams. He wrote about Truman. Huge books. And so a couple of years ago, as I'm kind of invested in all of this reading of historical biography, great books about people who shaped our history... I started feeling really guilty. Guilty because with all the great biographies I was reading, I wasn't reading any biographies on Jesus himself, right? It's like, okay, he shaped the history of the world just a little bit, right? He's the single most important figure in all of history. In fact, Christianity, though religion has tried to co-opt it, the truth is Christianity is Jesus plus nothing minus nothing. He's at the center of it. And so here I am as a pastor, and I wasn't reading about Jesus in biograph biographical form. So I started. In the last couple of years, I have literally omnivorously dug into books about Jesus, his teaching, his, his works, his life, the reality of the life that he lived. And a lot of people are talking about who's the real Jesus, and I'm reading stuff like that. And, and I have to tell you, I've really enjoyed and benefited from most of the books, not all, but most of the books I've read. But here's what I've discovered. Without a doubt, the place to genuinely get to know Jesus is in the Bible itself. In particular, in the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so with that in mind, I, I decided I needed to jump into a series on, on the biographical presentation of Jesus from one of those biblical books. And so over the course of the next eight weekends, what we're going to do is we're going to put the spotlight 
front and center on Jesus as we move right into Easter by diving into the book of Mark. So serious are we about building this series on the book of Mark that I have decided to sit on the book. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see it there in Brighton, but literally the book of Mark is the platform upon which I'm sitting. And, And before we take the leap, because there's so much practical application, devotional, spiritual application to this book that we're going to experience in this series. But before we get there, we have to know that this is a book that we can trust, that this is a book that's reliable, because tons of people have written about how unreliable the Bible is and how the stories of Jesus were made up hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus was on this planet, and none of what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And so I I think even though you need and deserve to get some spiritual, devotional, practical application from the teaching this weekend, you need to have some academic understanding about the reliability of this book, the book of Mark. And so I think we deserve to look at a couple questions. Like, who is this Mark guy, and why should we take him so seriously as someone to tell us about Jesus? So let's jump right in there. Mark was the son of a woman named Mary who was very involved in the beginning days of the church. In fact, you may never have thought of this, but in the beginning days of the church, they didn't have cathedrals and buildings devoted to church. They actually met in people's homes. People became Christ followers. They started gathering together to learn more about Jesus, to to serve Jesus, and they did it in homes. Hers was one of the primary homes in the early church. In fact, there's a story about Peter in the book of Acts where he's in prison, And God miraculously comes and frees him from prison. And so miraculous was it that he thought it was a dream. But he finally came to his senses and realized, God just released me from the prison. This angel just let me out. We'll pick it up there. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When this had dawned on him that he was really free from prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. That's the author of this gospel, where many people had gathered and were praying. And so what we learn about Mark from here is that he was at the center of the church experience from its very beginning. I mean, he was a part of the church from its beginning days, which happened literally just a couple of months after Jesus had died and rose again. And so he's right there at the center of the church. He was also related to a guy named Barnabas. Now, if you're newer to the Bible, that doesn't mean much to you, but Barnabas was a great leader of the early church. He's known as the the great encourager, and he actually worked with the apostle Paul. In fact, he kind of mentored and discipled Paul, was responsible for getting Paul his first pastoral ministry, and then Paul and Barnabas, Paul the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, actually started traveling around the world to share Jesus in cities that had never heard about Jesus, to wake the world up. And Mark, the writer of this gospel, was with them. And so he was influenced by and involved with two of the key leaders of the early church. He was mentored by them, Barnabas and Paul. Look at Colossians 4.10, Paul the Apostle's writing, and he says, My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So he's right at the center. He's at the center of the leaders of the church. He's at the center of the beginning of the church, and he's a part of the first adventure to take Jesus to the rest of the world, to fulfill the commission Jesus gave us to go into all the world. He, he's someone that has something to say, but it goes further than that, because Mark was also personally mentored by the apostle Peter. 
Peter, a big deal. In fact, if you're looking at the early church, Peter and Paul would be like the equivalent pillars of, of the church. And this guy, Mark, was mentored by Peter. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.13. She who is in Babylon. Now, before I go any further, some of the language of the Bible, if you're not aware of what's going on, can be confusing. She who is in Babylon, what does that mean? Well, when Mark wrote his gospel, when this is going on, when 1 Peter was written, persecution was being waged against anyone who followed Jesus, against the church. And so Peter was in Rome Almost everyone agrees. And you didn't want to identify where Christians were so that the government could come and take them out and they'd become martyrs. And so they had to come up with code names. Babylon was the code name for Rome. And she is speaking to the church in Rome. And so he, writing for the church at Rome, is saying, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, churches in other parts of the world, send you her greetings. And then he has this tag. And so does my son Mark. This is the same Mark that we believe wrote this gospel. And no, this is important, that, that he's calling him son. Not because he's the physical father, he's not, but because he's the spiritual father. So invested was Peter in this man, Mark. So close were they that he was considered Mark's spiritual father. Now think about that. Peter's a big deal. Peter just wasn't a part of the original 12. He was a part of the intimate three. He was the closest that you could get to Jesus in Jesus' life on this earth. And then it goes further. According to a guy named Papias, he actually, I know he's really an important figure to you. Most of you, you know, know Papias personally, right? Well, he was the bishop of a place called Heropolis. And Papias was born in 60 AD and lived to 130 AD. Now, why is that important? Well, if he was born in 60 AD, that's only about 25 years or so since Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven since the beginning of the church. Only 25 years after he was born. You, you want to have a, an example? That would be like Papias talking about Jesus and talking about Peter and talking about what was going on would be like my grandson talking about Everything I told him about Reagan getting shot or the things that happened with Jimmy Carter or the things that happened with Bill Clinton. Just, you know, about two decades removed. And so they're getting firsthand information from me about our recent history. That's who Papias was. And Papias had a relationship with the Apostle John, evidence tells us. So he had firsthand credibility of the people involved with Jesus. And this is what Papias tells us. Mark wasn't just the spiritual son of Peter. He was the personal translator and secretary for Peter. Back then, Peter probably didn't write his book. Very likely didn't. Paul didn't write a lot of his. It was probably Mark that wrote first Peter. Peter giving him the words. This is really important because this means that Mark knew and heard everything Peter ever said about his experiences with Jesus, his times with Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. Mark would have heard what, what Peter talked about in public, which was a lot, but Mark would have heard all the private stories, the little nuances. You can't get any closer to Jesus than Peter. And Mark was his secretary. Mark was responsible for writing down his thoughts. So here's where it gets interesting. Do we see Peter in the book of Mark? Yeah. When you read Mark's book, it's really like the first-hand account of Peter's story of Jesus because Peter is in every actionable event in the gospel of Mark. Peter's at the center. In fact, Peter is the highlighted character in the book of Mark. He appears more than any other character there. It's as if 
the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, is actually Peter's first-hand eyewitness account. And he really is giving his account. And so the book of Mark is an eyewitness account of one of the intimate three of Peter who went everywhere with Jesus. I mean, the intimate account of the one who walked on water and then sank. And just so you know that it's not being conflated, Peter told the truth about himself. I mean, you read the book of Mark and you realize Peter had some problems. And so he was honest, not only about himself, but about Jesus. You're getting a first-hand eyewitness account. But it goes further. The book of Mark should be taken seriously because Mark himself was an eyewitness. If he was a part of the early days of the church, which just happened months after Jesus walked on this planet and ascended to heaven, he was a part of that. And the truth is, he declares it in his book. Though he wasn't one of the twelve, he was an eyewitness. Look at Mark chapter 14, verses 51 through 52. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked leaving his garment behind. This is the first time in recorded history that someone streaked. Okay, that's uh, what you need to know. But that's a really weird verse. What's going on is Jesus is being betrayed. He's praying in the garden. The Roman soldiers come and get him. Judas kisses him on the cheek as that sign of betrayal and identification. They're hauling him away, and they're trying to gather everyone who is with Jesus and haul them away too. And that's when the story happens. And the guy was wearing a linen garment and they grabbed the garment and he left naked. Now that is a very weird verse in the Bible. I mean, why why is that story in there? Almost everyone who has a firm grasp of the Bible would accept that this is Mark referring to himself. The only reason to to include this weird little fact about some dude streaking through the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is trying to pray is the idea that the writer was personally invested, personally involved. And that fits with the customary style of writing in the day for two reasons. Number one, it was heavy persecution going on. And so the writers of of the Gospels weren't identifying themselves because that would put them at risk for persecution. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, never called himself John. He always called himself the Beloved. This is a part of the authorship. And, and so Mark would be doing the same thing here, not identifying himself, but, but sharing this weird story that he'd only know if it was him streaking through the garden. And then there's a second part of it. It was really about humility. The reason John didn't highlight himself in the Gospel of John is because the Gospel of John was about Jesus, not John. And so he was the Beloved. It wasn't about him wasn't meant to lift him up, it was meant to lift Jesus up. Same thing is going on with Mark. So everyone would agree, this has got to be Mark telling about himself without lifting himself up and highlighting himself. And so Mark was really close to the story. The Gospel of Mark is an eyewitness account, Peter's and Mark's own. And because of the closeness Mark has to the story, this book is powerful. It's not just a dry history without first-hand experience. It's not written three or four centuries later. It's written by someone who has first-hand experience and is recording the events of the guy who was closest to Jesus. And so Mark writes it differently than most histories. He writes it in the present tense as a narrative, as if it's happening right then in first person, because he wants people to know this isn't something he's telling about once happened, like a fairy tale, this is something he's saying, I experienced and Peter experienced and you need to know the reality of it. It's a present tense narrative of what happened. It's an eyewitness account. This should be taken seriously. Too many people are believing what people have written in the 18th century and the 19th century and and the 20th century and the 21st century about Jesus. 
Well, why don't you tell me something you know personally about someone who lived 2,000 years ago? You can suppose, you can think, you can speculate, but you don't know. This should be taken seriously because the form of writing seems to be not conflated, not hyperbole, but very real, very narrative. It's honest about the humanity and the flaws of humanity, and so it would carry over that it's honest about the experiences of Jesus. It is a powerful book to be taken seriously. It's an eyewitness account. Here's the truth. Reading the Gospel of Mark is as close as we can get to experiencing Jesus ourselves, walking with Jesus ourselves in real time. It's a big deal. And why does Mark write this record? Why, why is he giving it? What's his goal? Well, his goal is to wake us up to Jesus. In our terms, his goal was to bring Jesus to life to the rest of the world. He didn't want people to just know about or believe in Jesus as a matter of historical fact. He wanted people to actually know him and to experience him and to personally walk with him and follow him. And the reason is simple. Jesus had changed Mark's life. And he wanted Jesus to change our lives. And so he shared the story. Mark had learned firsthand that Jesus' story is the only story that can make sense out of our story. You see, apart from him, if we're honest in our human experience, our story is pretty confusing. Our story is hard to figure out. Think about all the books written about why bad things happen to good people and trying to figure out why the world's the messed up world it is. And think about your own experiences. I mean, isn't life just a bit confusing? The harder you try, sometimes the worse it gets. And as much as you long for light, you make choices of darkness. And it seems like it can get downright depressing. All darkness and no light. But Mark is saying when you know his story, it changes everything. Mark helps us to understand that when we know his story, we get to know where we came from. We didn't just get created as a cosmic accident. We were created by a loving God who has a plan and purpose for our lives. And Mark wants us to know that. Mark knew that when we understand Jesus' story, we'll understand what went wrong in this world. God didn't make this world wrong, but those God made in his image chose wrong. And it's had disastrous results where we've been separated from God and experience nothing but darkness in this world. And Mark knows that when we understand Jesus' story, it can change our story because Jesus' story is how God is rewriting the story of humanity. The Bible talks about the first Adam. Remember the first creation? Adam was created, and what happened to this world, the reason it's so messed up is because Adam blew it royally at the tree that God put in front of him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't touch that tree and you're going to experience everything I have for you, God says. And so what did he do? He listened to the evil one, the deceiver, the tempter, and he took from that tree and he blew it for everyone. We know darkness because of that first Adam. But then Mark says, you need to know, along with the rest of the Bible, that Jesus is here to restore the paradise that was lost to heal the brokenness that we've experienced, to bring the light into the world of darkness. Jesus, the Bible says, is the second Adam, here to recreate and redeem the paradise that God originally created us for. And the second Adam, Jesus, Mark tells us, redeemed it for us at the tree God put in front of him. Two trees. The first Adam failed at his tree. The second tree, Jesus succeeded at his tree. And what was his tree called? the cross, where he suffered 
the abuse that we deserved so that he could give us the glorious ending that only he deserved. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, this is Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. And just as we have been born in the likeness of the earthly man, frustrated and, and in darkness and without hope, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. He's rewriting the story, and Mark wants us to know. Jesus came and lived and died and rose so we could experience a very different story than the one we've written for ourselves. Do you realize in Jesus we can define by walking with God instead of away from him? In Jesus, we can experience God's presence instead of his absence. In Jesus, we can experience God's fullness instead of the world's emptiness. And Mark wants us to know Jesus is the story that God is rewriting for us. And all we have to do is know him. But Mark knows that in order for us to experience what God wants us to experience, we have to know who Jesus was and is. And so... That's what he does in the book of Mark. And I'm going to tell you, this is a fast-paced book. I mean, he wastes no time getting there. You can read uh, the historical biographies I read. I can read 200 pages before I really get the point that they're trying to communicate. The first sentence Mark communicates to us, the whole point of his entire book. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is. You've got everything he wants to communicate to you. He's saying, I'm giving you the good news. Jesus, this one that I saw, this one that Peter walked with, Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the promised rescuer and forgiver of this world. He's the one that God has sent to restore paradise for us. Jesus is the Christ. And know this, and this is something they didn't expect. He, the Savior, is God himself. He's the Son of God, equivalent of God. And this is vital for us to understand, and that's why it's the first sentence of his book. The whole point of this book is simply, this being true, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what you need to know. Because Mark wants us to be aware of that if this fact is true, that Jesus is the Son of God and he's Messiah, it changes everything. It means that God is not dead, as so many people assert. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, that means God is controlling the flow of history. He promised it would happen. He controlled history so that it could happen in the fullness of time. In our lives, what do we experience? Moment after moment of chaos. But what we need to know is that ultimately in the chaos, God is still in control. Jesus being true is a great example of that. I know life is chaotic, but God is in control. And Jesus being true brings it home. We have hope. Mark wants us to know that the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, means that God actually does insert himself into our world. Most people think he's absent. He's not absent. He inserts himself. This being true means that God keeps his promises. He made the promise thousands of years before it happened. God keeps his promises. You may feel like he's slow in keeping his promise, but he always keeps his promise, and he never delivers his promise until it's the perfect time, and Jesus is proof of this. And if what Mark writes is true, it means it's absolutely foolish, and it's the ultimate tragedy of the world if we don't listen to what he has to say. You're believing something. Some history you read, some philosopher you're attached to, you're believing something, some religion you were raised in, but the truth is that if what Mark writes is true, believing anything but what Jesus says, 
Doing anything in life but following Jesus and obeying him is foolish and will be your ultimate tragedy because he is God. It's the first sentence of the book of Mark. And so what Mark does is he sets off to prove his bold declaration that Jesus really is Messiah, that he really is the Son of God. And he starts by making it clear that the events of Jesus' life, unlike so many people have tried to to communicate, is not an accident, not a coincidence, but it's planned by God. God planned the coming of Jesus at the perfect time for us. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It is written in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who is the you, who is the your way that this messenger will be declaring and preparing the way for in the desert? Who is the you? Well, it goes on. Uh, this guy, this messenger, will be a voice calling in the desert. He won't be in the, uh, in, the, in the city. He'll be in the wilderness, in the desert. And he'll say, prepare the way for the Lord. I'm just kind of curious. Brighton, did you respond just now? About 10 people at Plymouth did. I'm just curious. All right. So, the Lord. This whole person is going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. This is something that no, a few people got. God was going to send a Messiah. They believed that a Christ. But they didn't understand it would be the Lord himself, the Son of God. And Mark is saying that Isaiah prophesied that God himself, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, that's the name, would come and be this one that this person would announce. And Mark's saying, it's Jesus. He's the Lord, God Almighty of the Old Testament. He jumps right in. And then he says, John, John the Baptist, known in the Bible, was the one sent to announce his coming. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Look at what he says in Mark chapter 1, 4, 7, and 8. And so John came, baptizing in the what? Where was this one going to be? Not in the cities, but in the desert. And that's where John was. Pretty weird. If you're going to build some great multitude of followers, would you do it in the desert or would you do it in the city? You do it in the city where the people are. He went to the desert and what happened? The multitudes came to him. It's a God thing. And there he was. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying the Christ is coming. The Messiah is coming. Forgiveness can come. God's rewriting the story. He's bringing back paradise. And then it says this is what his message was. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs. Now, before I go any further, I need you to know. This is not the thong you're thinking of. Okay? This splits a different part of the body, okay? It's the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and to untie. What he's basically saying in 21st century vernacular is, I'm not worthy to untie or tie his shoes. He's coming. He's the Lord. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the rescuer. And I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John made it clear that this Jesus was the one who was fulfilling that prophecy. Mark's jumping right in. And remember, he's not writing from centuries removed. He's writing as an eyewitness and giving Peter's story. And then he says, you want to know how we can know who Jesus was? Not only did John affirm him, not only does he fit the prophecies, but God affirmed him as his son. God affirmed him as his son. So there would be no question about his identity. When Jesus was baptized, God turned out He turned on his heavenly sound system. He picked up his heavenly mic and he spoke into it. Look what he says in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And by the way, for those of you in Plymouth, for those of you in Brighton, this Wednesday, Northridge Church, all four campuses are coming together for what we call a new life service, and it's our baptism service. And Jesus got baptized in the Jordan, and those who follow Jesus get baptized. And so we're baptizing, and if you've never been baptized since you've been following Jesus, you can get baptized. In fact, there in Brighton, here in Plymouth, in our lobbies at both places, there are people who can answer questions about baptism and interview you and get you set up for Wednesday. We'd love to have you baptized. For the rest of us, if you've never been to a baptism service at Northridge Church, it's inspiring, it's thrilling, it's exciting, and you should come. This Wednesday at 7 o'clock for baptism. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, back to the Bible. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, as Jesus was coming out of the water, as Jesus was coming out, I don't think this was sprinkling. What do you think? Just a thought. Okay. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you am I well pleased. Can you remember a time when God broke open the heavens and spoke before? In Genesis, when he said, let there be light and let there be life, God spoke. And what would you think would happen when God was coming back to heal the brokenness of the paradise he originally created, when God was coming to redeem, to recreate, to restore, what do you think God might do? Do you think he might say, as I spoke then, so I speak now, I'm the one recreating? He spoke, and he affirmed that Jesus is the one who is bringing it to bear. But there's even more than meets the eye to this passage. Here Mark is making it clear that the same God who worked in the original creation is now at work in restoring that creation through Jesus because in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? It's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Father, Spirit, and Word, or Son. And so in Genesis 1, we see God the Father... We see the Spirit hovering, and we see the Word being spoken, the hands and feet of Jesus, the Word of God, the Word bringing creation to bear. What do we see in the baptism passage? We see God opening heaven and speaking. We see the Spirit descending like a dove, and the Word is coming out of the water. Jesus is the living Word of God, the ultimate expression of God. We see the Trinity in the creation. We see the Trinity in the redemption. Why? Because it's the same God doing the same work. This is an unbelievable truth. And then, if it was like the original creation, God doing the work of giving us a paradise, if that's what redemption is and the work of Jesus is like, then... What could we expect to immediately happen when God does that work? We could expect Satan to attack. Because that's exactly what happened in the original creation. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus is introduced as the restorer of paradise. Look at Mark 1, 12 through 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted. He's the second Adam. What happened to the first Adam happens to him. He's being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Once again, Mark's taking us back to the original creation. He's making it clear. When God initially created his paradise for us, what did Satan do? He attacked. And now when God is beginning the work of redemption, restoring paradise for us, what did Satan do? He attacked. And what's the lesson for us? Let's... Get out of the academic and get very personal just for a minute. What's the lesson for us? 
This is something I know a lot of you are on social media. So you do Facebook, you do Instagram, you do Snapchat. Be careful the kind of pictures you send on that. Just a thought. Here's something that you should send out into your social media world. When God does a work, Satan goes to work. Mark that down. When God does a work, Satan goes to work. It always happens this way. God's work is building. Satan's work is destroying. And this is so important for us to understand. Those of us who are trying to follow Jesus and experience him in our lives, when God starts doing something special in our lives, mark it down. Satan is going to start doing something sinister in our lives. Always going to happen. So many people say, when I start experiencing God, when I start experiencing Jesus, when I start following him, man, I'm just going to experience sunshine all the time. Not in Michigan, you're not. <laughs> going to experience the warmth of his love. Yeah. As you go frostbit all around you. I, it's just, this is not how the world works. When God does a special work, Satan begins his sinister movement. It is true that experiencing God at work in our lives is one of the highest privileges of life. The truth is, if we're not experiencing God work in our lives, then we know there's something missing. You can have everything this world affords and know there's still something missing. Something's broken. Because without God, it's all broken and it's all darkness. And so the greatest thing we can ever experience, the highest privilege in life, is to experience Him working in our lives. But it's also profoundly dangerous. Because when you start experiencing God at work in your lives, you can know this. Satan will be at work as well. I mean, when, when God answers a prayer, and who doesn't want God to answer a prayer? I mean, what a gift, right? To have God absolutely evidence himself in answer to your prayer. But know this. When God gives you the gift of an answered prayer, it comes with this certainty. Satan will immediately start to inflict pain. Because Satan's goal is to keep you from God. And if he can inflict pain and trouble and problems into your life when God begins working, what will your tendency be? It will be to stop seeking God and experiencing that, to get rid of the momentary pain. And this is exactly what he's done throughout history. God is the solution to our problem, but Satan tries to create pain in that moment because when God is at work, so is he. God wants a relationship with us, but Satan wants to keep us from that relationship. Let me get more personal. God wants a relationship with you, but Satan wants to keep you from that relationship. God wants you to know what he created you for, his purpose and his pleasure in your lives. But Satan doesn't want you to know God's purpose or pleasure. He wants his purpose and pleasure alone. And everything he does is meant to get you serving his purpose and pleasure instead of experiencing the purpose and pleasure of God. And sadly, most of us are giving him the win, believing the great lie, but... Mark wants us to know, and when we get into this book, we see it. The truth is that conflict will always be a part of our spiritual lives. Conflict and warfare will always be a part of our spiritual lives. We can count on it. But we're also going to see in this wonderful book that Satan is not only a liar, he's a loser. I mean, he's a loser, the loser of the universe. 
Though he'll land a couple of good punches and he'll pound some really big nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, though he'll knock the life out of Jesus and turn out the lights for a moment, in the end, Jesus wins and Satan loses. Which means this. Which, Which means this. Those who follow Jesus always ultimately win, but those who don't follow Jesus, and it's the vast majority, will always ultimately lose. And sadly, too many of us are losing. Mark wants us to know Jesus came to rewrite the story of our lives. But to experience it, we can't do the same thing Adam did and believe the liar. We have to do what Jesus did and say, I don't want this pain and I don't want this problem, but nevertheless, your kingdom come, your will be done because when we give God the win, we always win. When we give Satan the win, we always lose. Who's winning in your life? Mark also wants to make sure that everyone knows that Jesus knew exactly who he was, the Son of God, and he wasn't shy about communicating it. These days, people say, oh, it's the product of religion. People who lived hundreds and hundreds of years after the man Jesus walked on the planet made this stuff up, and it's just not true. It's not true. You can believe the story and the fairy tales written by people 2,000 years removed, or you can believe the stories of those who were there. Jesus knew he was the Son of God and wasn't shy about declaring it. Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what was his good news of God? This is Jesus talking. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What time has come? The time that the Christ was going to come into this world. The Savior was going to come in the world. The Lord Almighty was going to come in the world. The time that the prophet Isaiah communicated about. And forgiveness is now here. The time has come. How did the time come? Because he had come. What was he saying? I'm the dude. Capital D-U-D-E. I'm the dude. He, he wasn't shy about it. Uh, Mark shows us that Jesus made it clear that he thought he was God in the way he taught. Look at Mark 127. It'll throw up on the screen. The people were all so amazed at his teaching that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with a Authority. That word authority has in its etymological background uh, the idea of originality. And so they're, they're saying it's not that he powered up and taught that way. It was that he taught. He, he didn't teach like others. He didn't teach as if he was interpreting some, others, some other author's words. He taught as if he was the author himself. He, he didn't teach off the source of someone else's writing and words. He, he taught off of his own words. He taught with authority. And if you think about it, just read the Bible, you'll see this. When a, when a prophet or a spiritual teacher wanted to, have, wanted to have clout in their teaching, you know what they always said? This is what the Lord says. They started that. Not, not this is what I say. This is what the Lord says. And then they say what they want to say. And false prophets did it and real prophets did it. Same thing goes on today. They want to learn. I had this vision from God. Here's what it was. By the way, be careful about that one. I had a vision from God. Maybe they ate Mexican food last night, so be really careful with it, right? But they always say, thus saith the Lord, and then they tell, tell you what he said. Do you know Jesus didn't teach like that? 
You know what Jesus said? Truly I say to you. Now if you read different translations, it could say, verily, verily I say, or truly, truly I say. He didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, this is what I'm saying. Why did he say that? It's because he was saying, I don't need to claim God's authority because I am God. I mean, mark it down. You can reject it if you want, but you can't say he didn't say he was God because he did, which means you can't like his teaching and not believe that he's God. That's like saying, I really like the teaching of the insane dude at the hospital. I mean, if, he, if you don't believe he's God, then you can't like his teaching. And to like his teaching, you have to believe who he said he was, God. Mark did. Mark wanted you to know that Jesus was very clear in declaring that he was God in the things he said. In Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at one of my favorite healing scenes where four guys carry his, their paralyzed friend to Jesus, you know, and we'll look at the details later. But, but the first thing Jesus says when, when they bring this guy to him was, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And everybody around was going, who has the power to forgive sins but God? To which Jesus was saying, Right. Because with his words, he was declaring himself to be God. But you know what Mark makes it clear about? Mark makes it clear that Jesus wasn't just a big talker. He lived up to his claims in every way. Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God. Because in character, he was without sin. Who's the only one without sin? God. In power. He did what only God can do. He healed he drove out evil spirits. He walked on the water. And so many people don't understand. The water was the place where the abyss of the, of the dark gods were. And Jesus walked on the water because he was going to step on the heads of all those fake gods. Because that's what the real God would do. And then he calmed the storm. Why? Because he was God. And he lived up to his promise. He was the original creator of paradise. And he promised that he would restore paradise. And... He told us how. The wages of sin is death, and so someone had to die. And So look what the prophet Isaiah said. The Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Before crucifixion as a torture had even been invented, God said, I'll come and I'll be pierced and I'll suffer and I'll die for your sins so that I can rewrite your story with my story so that you'll no longer be lost in your sin and darkness and guilt, but you can live in my light and in my fullness because I'm restoring paradise and yet in those days, and throughout all of history, including today, few have genuinely followed Jesus. Few have genuinely followed him. They've believed the philosophers and the historical characters and the religion, but they haven't believed the marks of this world. And it makes sense, because this world is a world that's living according to the deception of the evil one, instead of the truth of the God who can give us paradise. But sadly... Even today, most are missing it. And so as we begin diving into this book, the book of Mark, this eyewitness account, we believers, we people, have a choice to make. Will we accept the good news Mark wrote to us, or like the majority of the world, reject it? 
It starts with the first sentence. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To experience the story God wants to write in your life instead of the story that you've written and to get past the darkness and despair of your bad choices, your sin and guilt, to experience the light that only he can put in you, you have to start there. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And to experience the life that I need, I need him. And if you've never taken that step, that's the step you need or you'll never experience the life you're longing for. Before I make the final application to all of us here, I want to pray with those of you who are ready to take that step. And so, whether you're here in Plymouth or you're in Brighton, I just really want to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer for a minute. Maybe you're online. And if you're ready to take this step and to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, personally, just make my words in this prayer yours. Just say, Jesus, in this moment, I'm admitting My choices, my story has led to darkness and I need you. I believe, Jesus, that you're the Savior, that you're God, and that when you died on that cross, you died in my place for my sin. And when you rose again, it was to give me new life. I confess my sin. I turn from it. I put my faith in you and I'm asking you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, I really want to encourage you, please let us know. In both Brighton and Plymouth, we've given you these programs, and inside is this connection card, and all you have to do is rip it out and check off that bottom that says, today you pray with me. Make sure you put your information here, and then put it in the boxes right outside the exits or there in Brighton. You can take it to your guest reception uh, area in the lobby and we'll do the rest. We'll send you that information. If you're watching online, uh, just hit the what next button. We'll do the same for you. But now for the rest of us, for believers, did you know when we read the book of Mark, it's not just for others, it's for us? When I, when I read the book of Mark, I am so challenged by what I haven't done in trusting Jesus yet. Because in light of Mark's book, his eyewitness account, we have a choice to make as believers. Already following Jesus, we have a choice to make. Will we accept Jesus fully as the Son of God in our lives or not? Will we follow Jesus wholly as the Son of God in our lives or not? Will we listen to him as God's voice in our lives or not? Will we obey him as the Lord and God of our lives or not? And I know a lot of you are saying, wait a minute, I, I do accept him as the son of God. I believe and listen and obey. Really? 100%? All in? Don't hedge your bets at all? I bet you do. I know I do. What we need to realize is there's no middle ground. He's either the son of God, the one we follow, listen, and obey, or he's not. We either believe it or we don't. Look what Jesus said about this in Luke 14, In the same way, any of you who does not give up, what's that next word? Everything cannot be my disciple. You can't be partly in. Do you know what partly in is? Not in at all. You can't partly obey and partly listen. Try that with your parents if you're a teenager. It just doesn't work. 
We have to be all in. Too many of us are living in the soft center, the quicksand of the middle, where we use the words of following him, but we don't live the life of following him, and so we're paralyzed. You know what happens? We still live the confusing lives of a lost paradise. We get darkness after darkness after darkness. We're not experiencing his promises. We're using very Jesus-like language, but we're not experiencing the Jesus-like story because we're not all the way in. We have a choice to make. Are we going to go all in without hedging our bets? Or are we going to be part in and part out? Which means all out. As we go through this book, I want to encourage you to be committed to it. Be reading it yourself. Be committed to attending so that you can be challenged at the very bedrock of who you are. Let's make it, and this is why we've made the stage this way, let's make it the foundation of our lives entirely in everything we do and all of our choices in life. I really encourage you to be inviting other people to be a part of this as we move towards Easter. Because each week, as we open the book of Mark, we're going to ask this question. What's your choice? Are you in or out? Are you making him the foundation or not? Are you following or not? Because when we follow him, he writes a new story in our lives, and then we experience light and hope and all we're looking for. Let's all do it together. Thanks for coming. By the way, if you're here in... God's been doing something in your life during this service. Uh, I just really want to encourage you there in Brighton, the same thing. We have a team of people who would love to pray with you and talk to you if you'd like to do that. And so all you have to do is everyone else is leaving. You just come down front and just sit. And our team will come and pray with you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.